Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're returning with part two of our exploration of Victorian spiritualism. But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on? Well, having communed with the voices from beyond, I am indeed informed that the tome, that blasphemous work, is indeed taking shape and it is coming. Yeah, it should be going to press not too long after this episode goes out. So, yeah, yes, it is imminent. Mm-hmm. See com for more details. And thinking more details... Paul, I understand from also from speaking with those from beyond that you are going to be speaking to some other not exactly spiritual folks in the not too distant future, but some people more on this plane. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you weave that in there, Matt. Yes, they are from the realm beyond this podcast. They manifest from other podcasts, such as the Grognard Files and All Out Rex's Gaming Vexes and possibly even uh, Frankenstein's RPG podcast. Yes, I'll be on a panel at Games Expo on Saturday the 3rd of June at Birmingham, UK. That's uh, 2023 for listeners in the future. Yes, please do come along. We'll be there for give or take an hour talking about all manner of things. So join me, Dirk, Steve, and with any luck, Dave as well for an hour of uh, waffle. (laughs) Waffle there. Waffle's a strong word. I like waffles. Is it waffle? (laughs) Could be waffle. But no, it'd be uh, it'd be educational and enlightening, I'm sure. Stuff. Mm. It might be stuff. <laughs> it'd be good stuff. And speaking of good stuff, a weekend with good friends is approaching fast. This is the gaming convention, the online gaming convention, organised by our lovely listeners, that takes place on the Good Friends of Jackson Elias Discord server. The next Weekend with Good Friends takes place over the 7th to the 9th of July 2023. But if you would like to offer a game for the convention, GM signups actually start quite soon on the 2nd of June, running through to the 15th of June inclusive. You can, if you miss this, run a game, a pickup game, during the convention itself. But if you offer a game during this time window, then it will appear in the convention program and players will then get a chance to sign up for it officially. If you would like to learn more about a weekend with good friends, there is a web page for it on our server, which I will link to from the show notes. And you can also find out all about it by joining our Discord server, where the latest information is posted constantly. And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And now on to our main topic, Victorian Spiritualism, Part 2. We're continuing our discussion of spiritualism in the Victorian age from last episode, looking into the people who defined the movement. Once again, our approach is going to be a sceptical one. While our intent is not to offend anyone who believes in spiritualism, the history of the movement is so filled with frauds that it's hard for us to take it seriously. Damn straight. 
As per last episode, our main references are Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances by Lisa Morton, The Table Wrappers by Ronald Purcell, and the incredibly long-titled Medical Meddlers, Mediums and Magicians, The Victorian Age of Credulity by Dr. Keith Soter. Last episode, we left with the question, how did spiritualism become so popular in Victorian Britain? And by that, we mean the gaslight setting especially as it was an American invention. This was something that actually surprised me a little bit when I started doing the initial research for this episode a while back, because whenever I thought of spiritualism in this age, my mind always went to British spiritualism. And that may be a cultural bias, but it hadn't even occurred to me that the origins were American and that it had been imported into the UK from America and really took off here. We get a lot of things from America, don't we? I think we get more flowing this way than flowing the other. Mm. Some of it great, lots of it good, some of it Oreos. I was going to say Twinkies. (laughs) I love Twinkies. It's taken ages for them to catch on over here. (laughs) They haven't caught on, Matt. They haven't caught on. I like, Matt, that when you're talking about things from the US that you like, your mind went to Twinkies and not say your wife. (laughs) I like Twinkies, what can I say? (laughs) Don't pressure him. (laughs) Sorry, Tiff. (laughs) It's a very Homer moment, I feel. (laughs) Of course, donuts, but that's only because they can't spell them right over there. There's a G and a H in there, damn it. (laughs) But yes, spiritualism was imported into the UK by, well, initially one woman, an American medium by the name of Maria B. Hayden, who had become famous for her technique of spirit telegraphy. We were having a little chat before the recording, and I was just mentioning to the others, I can't remember where I read it, but one author I was looking at was suggesting that one possible reason why spirit wrapping had caught on so much was that it entered the public consciousness at the same time as telegraphy was taking off, and people perhaps associated the wrapping with Morse code. And so that legitimised it as a form of communication. And this was a sort of form of spirit wrapping where Mrs. Hayden would call out letters to the alphabet and the spirits would wrap in response, a bit like a, a Ouija board, except noisier. And so she turned up in Britain in 1852 and introduced this practice and became the first popular medium in Britain. I wonder this is how why loads of rappers today have lots of initials in their in their names, like Ice T or Eminem. I think you've made a link from rapping to rappers that doesn't really exist, Matt. It's been there in my head since the last episode. <laughs> I kind of like that there was a link somehow, and that'd be great if there was a scenario that linked the two. If there wasn't a link between rappers and spiritualism, how do you explain the two pack hologram? Hmm. Someone needs to whistle the X Files theme or the Twilight Zone theme about now. Besides Miss Hayden or Mrs. Hayden, there's a few social factors at play here as well. 
Academics have suggested that spiritualism achieved popularity as a response to the rationality and scientific advancement of the Victorian age. Darwinism, in particular, shook up the religious and spiritual communities. In this respect, spiritualism perhaps echoes the Gothic and the Romantic movements. Nice, nice callback to previous episodes there. Yeah, because in the Gothic episode, we did discuss a little bit about how the Gothic movement was perhaps a response to the Enlightenment, or at least the Romantic movement, which it grew out of, was a response to the Enlightenment. And so, yeah, I think we perhaps see the cycle over and over again that uh, as science makes the world simpler and more rational, there is a, a very human impulse to run into the irrational. Thank God we're past such things today. Mm. Sutra argues in his book that the explosion of new ideas at the time might have also made people more credulous as they tried to keep up with the changing world. This led to a boom time for all sorts of charlatans. I mean, again, is there ever a time that isn't a boom time for charlatans? I don't know. We've yet to see one. But this was a particularly good one. And I guess I sort of see his point there that if you're being flooded with new ideas and new beliefs the whole time, if you're told that the world is changing, that must make it difficult to differentiate the fraudulent claims from the real ones. If you don't have any direct experience or empirical way of testing these things, if one day you're told that everything you knew about religion was was wrong, that man wasn't created in this form by God and that we evolved from other life forms, and the next you're told, oh, yeah, actually, here's this, this woman who can speak to the dead and, and reveal truths from beyond the grave, I guess... Your mind is bouncing all over the place trying to absorb all this new information, these shifts in your worldview, and it must be quite difficult to keep up with what's real if all your assumptions are being challenged the whole time. I guess. The mortality rates at the time were high, and people were attracted by the promise of communicating with dead loved ones. Spiritualism seemed to offer certainty in matters of life after death, where conventional religion demanded faith. I can certainly see that from a personal perspective. Which one am I more likely to go along with? The one that just asks for blind acceptance without proof or the stuff that actually gives you some kind of concrete answer, some kind of something physical or something mm. tangible that you can latch on to? Mm. Yeah, a more immediate answer and an actual personal link as well. Mm. And I think that's also something that we perhaps see in Call of Cthulhu, in that you've got perhaps mythos cults or mythos beliefs where you're being presented with evidence of what you're told is divine. You're, you're being shown tangible things that are beyond understanding. And that seems to me more powerful than faith. You go to church, you're told, oh, there's all these wonderful things waiting for you from beyond the grave, but you, know, you can't have any direct experience of them and no one can actually speak to you from beyond and tell you all that. And then you've got someone who comes along and tells you, oh, actually, no, no, yeah, we, we can tell you all that. Yeah, here's a way of directly experiencing it. And, you know, that's definitely got parallels with, say, here's my God, you can meet him personally. Here he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people always want a shortcut, I think. They always want the, the quick and easy way of doing things. That's always going to be a, an easier sell. 
I think there's also the factor that people who aren't necessarily disposed to faith might be convinced by what appears to be empirical evidence, even if it is utterly fraudulent. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's also the factor that a lot of people in this era saw spiritualism simply as entertainment. They go along to seances for fun. And in that respect, it kind of paralleled a lot of the other entertainments at the time, like the ghoulish phantasmagoria and magic lantern shows that were touring around the country at the time. People just wanted to see ghosts and spirits and spooky things. The Victorians in general had a really shitty definition of entertainment. There was also (laughs) a fad at the time, didn't they, like to go gawk at people in asylums of like, hey, look at the crazy man in the corner here. I think that was earlier than the Victorian times, actually, like the public viewing galleries in Bedlam and so on. I think that predated the Victorian era. I think that's more like 18th century. But we see a a version of that in um, Nightmare Alley, which is sort of portraying the 1930s. True with the geek. Yeah. Yeah, but I think by the time the Victorian era had come along, that a lot of the the more salacious aspects of asylums had died down. They weren't quite the public spectacles that they had been before. But I think this whole aspect of it being entertainment should Mm -hmm. not be overlooked. Oh, God, yeah. It does seem like a lot of it is just stage magic dressed Mm. up as something else. And I think that we enjoy stage magic. That draws audiences. And this is just a different way of presenting that. There's a different gloss on it. But I think that that element of entertainment, even if you're not sort of accepting that you're going for entertainment, I think that must have been quite a draw. Yeah, I guess my sympathy for that perspective, well, not from the people going, but from the mediums who were conducting it, very much depends on what they offered the audience. If it was a spectacle and, oh yeah, we'll call spirits and they'll play musical instruments and dance around and there'll be funny lights and you, you'll have bits of fruit materialise and stuff like that, then that seems like harmless fun. Mm. If it's then sold more as, oh yeah, but but with all that, give, give me some money and you can talk to your, your dead mother, then I think that suddenly becomes something a lot more sinister. Predatory almost in a way. Yeah. But it seems like there were quite a lot of people involved in the seances. And I kind of figure that quite a lot of those were along as spectators almost. Oh, yeah, yeah. So even if it is the case that somebody is being exploited, perhaps partly for the entertainment of others, it feels like. I guess if the mediums presented what they were doing solely as entertainment and the way the stage magicians do, I'd probably feel a lot better disposed towards the whole movement. Oh, for sh- well, yeah, that would be a whole different thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, if that were the case, that would be uh, totally different. Like Theosophy, spiritualism also attracted progressive political activists. The large number of female mediums drew in campaigners for universal suffrage. Others used spiritualism as a vehicle to speak against issues such as capital punishment and animal experimentation. Some were proponents of free love. So yeah, it does seem like a lot of these people, like last episode, we said how they would latch on to the popular religion of the, Mm. the place, that being Christianity, to sort of promote 
their own shows, if you like, to promote what they were doing. I think they also latched on to, well, they used it as a vehicle to put forward these political opinions as well, partly to draw perhaps people in, but also partly as a way of getting their own message out. Quite possibly this is related to the kind of people who were drawn to spiritualism. I guess a lot mm. of them were nonconformist types. And as we touched on last episode, the fact that a lot of the guiding lights of the movement were women, which certainly, I think, shaped the movement in a way that other social movements at the time weren't shaped. It led to a greater diversity of voices and opinions that you might not have got in mainstream politics. And by its nature, it feels like you're drawing in people who are impressionable, perhaps even vulnerable, but certainly impressionable. And there's the potential to convert them to your cause, almost as a side effect of this. But we saw much the same thing happen in theosophy as well, as, as you mentioned. So, you know, for example, Annie Besant, or Besant, I, I can never remember how her name is pronounced, was one of the guiding lights of theosophy and went on to become a great political campaigner and, you know, championed mm. social change. I mean, for example, changing the working conditions of, of match factory workers and stuff like that and became a crusading journalist. And I think these two worlds were very closely tied. I think it's interesting to consider Lovecraft is a bit later than what we're talking about here. But he sort of shows the world where human beings aren't important. And I think this very much, the whole spiritualism movement puts forward this whole, you know, we're very special. We get to live after death and uh, come back. Mm. And you're very special because there's people on the other side that want to talk to you. The general thing in a lot of Lovecraft stories is that, you know what, you're not important. You're going to die and that's going to be it. It's just, that's reality. And, you know, we're not magical beings that are at the centre of the universe, but we just think we are. That perhaps informs some of the way that we use spiritualism and this whole movement and a lot of the things we're talking about here in games of Call of Cthulhu, in that it doesn't necessarily make sense for spiritualism to be a real thing in Call of Cthulhu. It... I think as a game setting, the Cthulhu mythos lends itself far more to perhaps fraudulent mediums or the kind of assessment of mediums that, that we have in the real world, or alternatively, mediums who have got in touch with things from beyond that they think are spirits and are being manipulated by or perhaps are even using alien intelligences. And that's perhaps the way we can make spiritualism real in our games. I mean, I think it's worth remembering you can have spiritualism as real in one scenario. You know, it is actually yeah. oh, the, yeah. the voice of the dead that are coming and speaking to you. In another scenario, all that stuff doesn't exist and it's some alien entities that are talking to you. It doesn't have to be a cohesive whole. Let's have a look at who were the most prominent figures in Victorian spiritualism. Well, we covered a few of the big ones, like the Fox sisters. 
and Mrs. Hayden, but one of my favourites from this period, just fundamentally because of how shit he was. Well, no, I, I suppose that's a bit unfair, but perhaps how much he got caught out and was exposed was this guy called Francis Ward Monk. And Monk, I think, is probably best remembered now for how badly he failed as a medium. He was exposed as a fraud any number of times, uh, particularly by Neil Masculin, who we've mentioned a couple of times. And I didn't realise again until I was reading up for all this stuff that what he was convicted under as a fraudulent medium was the Vagrancy Act, which kind of puzzled me a bit. And apparently there was a clause in the Vagrancy Act which allowed for the prosecution of fraudulent mediums. It doesn't seem at all obvious from the name of the Act. If it took tax evasion laws to get rid of Al Capone, I can perfectly see Vagrancy <laughs> Acts getting rid of mediums. Well, except in this case, I think it really was that the Vagrancy Act did cover fraudulent mediums. But it's also a bit like how in the 1940s, there was the last ever prosecution in the UK under the Witchcraft Act. I can't remember the name of the woman, but this was in the, the mid-40s. Mm. And she was prosecuted out of the Witchcraft Act, not because anyone actually believed she was a witch, but because it was a convenient way to prosecute her as a fraudulent medium. In one particularly bad seance, the participants turned against Monk, and he had to flee by climbing from a bedroom window, leaving behind such items as stuffed gloves, cheesecloth, extendable rods and cardboard cutouts of faces. I mean, that's a good pack of gear right there for any <laughs> investigator to be carrying around, I think. It really is. I can see it being a bit tricky to explain why as a medium you had those things about your person. Mm. They're not exactly the kinds of things that you, know, you might ordinarily be carrying down to the shops or whatever. I like the cardboard cutouts of faces. I mean, how convincing were they going to be? I don't know. <laughs> I think we'll see this throughout this episode. This was a, a thing. You'd be as spirit faces. People mm. would manifest faces, and they were generally like cardboard cutouts cut out from magazines or papier mache masks. They were that simple and that crap, and yet it worked. I mean, to be fair, it would have probably worked in Blake Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Much as I love it, the special effects, not great. Yeah. Another successful British medium who was similarly exposed as a fraud was a fellow by the name of Charles Williams. Like Monk, he fled a disastrous seance, leaving behind wigs, false moustaches, muslin, a bottle of phosphoric oil, all of which had been used to create spirit faces. And he wishes that the dice hadn't come up double zero when he tried to make his fast talk roll or, yeah. uh, or tried then yeah. to make his run like hell out of the event roll. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that would make a great opening to a scenario. You know, mm. You're walking down the street and you see this panicked man climbing out of a bedroom window, jumping down to the ground, leaving a trail of wigs and strange bottles of glowing liquid behind him. What's this uh, vial of glowing green liquid? And at which point Mr. West comes along and says, that's mine, don't worry about it. And then we move on to the Davenport brothers. Ira and William Davenport introduced the use of the spirit cabinet. And this, I think, is one of the most blatant bits of 
what we'd think of as stage magic being used in mediumship. So basically, this is a large wooden box that they'd sit in. And they were tied to chairs with ropes and surrounded by musical instruments. They'd be shut into the box, and this was in the dark. I mean, all of these things were in the dark. And the audience would then hear the instruments being played by spirits because, well, I mean, the, the brothers couldn't be doing it because they were tied to the chairs. And the audience would see spirit hands protruding from the cabinets. And when the performance was open, the doors would be open and the audience would see the brothers still tied up. So they couldn't have played those instruments. See, when you said spirit cabinet, my mind immediately just went to, it's a place where I keep my booze. <laughs> no, this isn't the fun kind. Harry Houdini and stage magicians like John Mulholland and John Maskelyne thoroughly debunked these practices, showing how the brothers used simple escapologist techniques, such as loose ropes and hidden knives. Trust a magician to absolutely ruin all the fun right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come to Florence Cook. Cook was a pioneer in creating spirit faces. <laughs> apparently manifesting spirits in recognisable human form. This was an escalation of the previous technique of manifesting spirit hands, <laughs> now with added faces. Yeah. Brilliant. What about the rest of the spirit? Did they, just hands and faces? Come on. Can we not have whole spirit bodies? Oh, yeah, you would. And this happened at Cook's seances. They'd see a figure sitting in the chair that they believed to be Cook. And <laughs> what, what she'd do apparently was slip out of her clothes and leave this mask, this spirit face, sitting on, on top of it. And then run, I'm assuming not naked, but uh, maybe in lighter clothing, in the dark through the audience, pretending to be her spirit guide, Katie King, and, and just like doing things. Which, again, is, I mean, the, the simplicity and the blatancy of these things is just, there's something almost childlike about it, isn't there? I was going to make the parallel. It almost sounds cartoonish, hmm? the, the idea of just suddenly popping out of your clothes and running around like uh, running around the audience. It sounds like something you'd find out of a, of a Looney Tune cartoon hmm. or something really just crazy and outlandish. Next up on our roster of infamy is Daniel Douglas Hume. Scottish-born and American-raised, Hume was one of the most famous mediums of the era. He's known as the only medium never to be exposed. Evidently kept his clothes on at all times. <laughs> Although this is highly debatable. One notable example of Hume being caught out is a seance he conducted for the poets Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Hume manifested the spirit face of a child, claiming it was Browning's son who had died in infancy. Unfortunately for Hume, the Browns had never lost a child. It's kind of a bit of a, a bit of a botch if you say, yeah. I'm your lost son, we didn't lose a son. <laughs> yeah, you think that that would be basic research before you start doing something like that. I'm guessing he did his research and it was wrong, right? So <laughs> Either that or he was just playing the odds with the incredibly high mortality rate amongst <laughs> Victorians. Yeah. That is definitely a double zero on his role there. Mm. It's where he really, when he gets back, oh, I slipped the wrong research notes in. That's next week's con job. I mean, uh, seance. 
But the thing Hume was especially known for was levitation. And like all these fucking mediums, he'd do his his, uh, act in the dark or the gloom. The most common form of this was that the participants would hear his voice rising up, probably through some form of ventriloquism, and he would invite the audience members to reach up and touch his feet as he floated above them. And what he was actually doing was just holding his shoes up. But again, it's so simple, but a word. On other occasions, however, he did get a bit more elaborate, and there are reports of him floating up in the air within full view of people, and apparently even flying in and out of windows. I don't know precisely how that was done, maybe wire work. But yes, yeah, I mean, that, that was what he was known for. But he also operated as a more traditional physical medium and trance medium, using techniques like, like rapping. I did actually buy a book recently, which I haven't had a chance to read, which is a biography of Hume called The First Psychic. And he might be another good candidate for a a Strange NPCs episode because Mm. there is a lot to him. I mean, we just touched on a couple of things here, but I think out of all the psychics of the era, he was, I mean, for a start, one of the most famous, but also... Some of the stories about him, like going off to St. Petersburg and getting involved with uh, stealing jewels under the guise and performing a seance and stuff like that. And he sounds like the best or worst kind of rogue. And then there's William Stainton Moses. Now, Moses was a Church of England priest who discovered spiritualism in 1872. As we mentioned earlier, he was one of the main proponents for merging Christianity and spiritualism. His main technique was automatic writing, and he filled 24 notebooks with the words of his spirit guides. I just wonder what those notebooks are full of. Just read the same word over and over again. (laughs) Fraud, 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 fraud. These formed the basis for his religious teachings. His spirit guide, Imperator, would also speak through him, delivering sermons. For when you can't be bothered to write your own sermons, you're subcontracting that as well. And we shall return in just a moment to discuss different ways in which fraudulent mediums fate seances. Did you know this show is edited? But I can say fuck, right? Uh, carry on. Anyway, if you want to hear the host mess up and waffle on even more, just chip in a dollar a show at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonalias, where all backers gain access to uncut versions of the show. So what were some of the main techniques used by fraudulent mediums? So we've mentioned all these, I think in most cases it's fair to say fraudulent mediums, but what are some of the techniques that they used? Because let's face it, if you're bringing these people or characters like them into your games, you probably, I guess, want to have seances and and so on that aren't complete fakes. Mm. But... On the other hand, if you do want to have fraudulent mediums in there, then it's probably inspirational to learn what some of the techniques they used were. 
having a very high psychology skill and one hell of a good luck with your fast talk. A decent score and sleight of hand wouldn't go amiss either, and you could possibly even have a special art craft skill in faking seances. So one of the key things for a, a good seance was darkness, just the use of low light. I mean, most often seances were conducted in darkness and not only did this create a spooky atmosphere, but it allowed the medium to create their phenomena without the participants seeing what they were doing. And not that I generally play the games in the dark, but low light is always is usually good for creating atmosphere. And yeah. it just I think it just frees up people's imaginations and mm. it's just and more relaxing as well. It gets you into a different state of mind. You say that, but you are the exact reason mm. why I have so many glow-in-the-dark Cthulhu dice after you ran the first part of Walker <laughs> in the Wastes in the dark at the MKRPG Club, because I just had to sit there with my UV torch every <laughs> bloody week, powering up those dice so I could see what the hell I was rolling. Okay, that is true. Sometimes I have run games in the dark. <laughs> I'm glad you were doing it at the club, because I, I imagine some places where games take place, you don't want to go around with the UV torch. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly LARPs. Especially in venues where they charge by the hour, yeah. <laughs> so as we mentioned before, the Davenport brothers also conducted their spirit cabinet performances in the dark. And the the reason they gave for this is absolutely amazing, which is that the spirits used electricity to manifest and move things. And this electricity, they could only generate this electricity in the dark, the presence of light interfered with this process. So, see, it's science. It's mm. science. You can't have the lights on. It interferes with the electrical spirits. Isn't there, this is my uh, drawing on again, popular culture here, or maybe niche popular culture. Isn't there a psychological condition which is still very much being debated by modern medicine as to say whether it actually really exists or not, where people believe they can feel electromagnetic fields caused by the likes of electric wiring? Because this featured oh, in sure. Medical Saul with uh, yeah. Saul's brother, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently they affect the dead as well as the living. Hmm. Sergeant Edward William Cox, while a spiritualist himself, became convinced that Florence Cook was a fraud. He documented some of her techniques and focused on the dim lighting used to disguise her actions. Cook would also use the sounds of the participants singing to disguise any noise she might make while moving around in the dark. I think we mentioned about that, yeah, all these singing and prayers and hymns yeah. and such that people give are a great cover. Mm. They give you a bonus dice on your move furniture roll whenever you're moving stuff around. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, and then we have wrapping. As we mentioned in the last episode, the Fox sisters admitted that the original spirit wrapping was created by clicking the bones in their feet. This technique persisted through the Victorian age. And Mrs. Hayden, who we mentioned earlier, the medium who brought spiritualism to Britain, used this technique as part of her spirit telegraphy shtick, using it to spell out answers. And uh, critics apparently pointed out that she could only actually use this technique if she saw the alphabet laid out in front of her, which does sort of suggest that maybe the spirits weren't giving her as much help as she might like. <laughs> Mrs. Hayden, I just want to think that her stage name was uh, Miss B. Hayden. I don't know, it just rolls off the uh, tongue. Miss, yeah. <sighs> Worthy of Houdini, there's also escapology and stage magic techniques. 
One of the earliest techniques used in table turning is known as the human clamp, and that just makes me wince. <laughs> oh, this sounds like a superhero name now. <laughs> the human clamp. Or something you find in the Kama Sutra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the horror. This involves, oh, I know I'm just going to cringe at this. This involves wedging a foot underneath the table and counterbalancing it with a hand on the surface, allowing the medium to rock or levitate the table. Actually, that was not as bad as I was thinking that was going to be. I saw wedging and I thought, <laughs> holy shit, what am I going to... Oh. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, Pat. I feel guilty for asking this, but what do you think it was going to involve? Kind of almost a bit like the spirit cabinet that involved always some contortionist act where you got oh, someone okay. put inside a ridiculously small box as part of like the furniture of your trick. Ah, right. And that then they manipulate things in different sounds to come from different areas. But no, that, that is nowhere near as bad as I thought it might be. The claustrophobe in me suddenly got a hell of a lot wincy at that. But ugh. Another early technique involved the medium getting the participants around the table to hold hands in the dark, but guiding the participants on either side of them to hold each other's hands so that the medium's own hands were free. But, you know, they'd all think that they were like holding hands with the medium, right? Mm. This allowed mediums to, for example, play musical instruments under the table, claiming that the spirits were doing it. Not me. It's the spirits. <laughs> Yeah, it can't be me. You're holding my hand. Makes me think of that scene in The Haunting of Hill House. That's not my hand. Yes. <laughs> I was just more thinking of blowing that trumpet with their ass, but fair enough. See, I was going for an accordion between the knees, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, many mediums would make use of their feet as well to move items or touch participants under the table. Dee Dee Hume, for example, was accused of wearing thin shoes and cutting the ends off his socks to leave his toes free. He was accused of wearing thin shoes. That's a, well, yeah. It amuses me. Also, Matt just summed up the spirit trumpet right there, I think. <laughs> oh, God. You've got to clench in the right manner, though, to get the right pitch to, uh, mm. through that thing. But, but if you're not careful, you follow through with ectoplasm. <laughs> And again, we're back to wedging stuff into confined spaces. But anyway, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, many of the phenomena that involve the medium being tied up were achieved by either using loose ropes or the medium hiding a knife on their person with which to cut the ropes. In other words, they cheated. Spirit writing could be achieved by using slates with writing already on them, swapping them out for blank slates the participants had been presented with. Going back to the the ropes for a moment, it stunned me how much of the the mediumship at the time did seem to involve being tied up. And again, this is like how much it borrowed from, or maybe even later informed stage magic and escapology. Mm. That it did seem like almost every medium had some part of their routine which would involve them escaping bonds. Well, not just that, but then mysteriously tying knots in the rope afterwards and the rope being found elsewhere with knots on it that no human could have tied that quickly. Mm. But importantly, we're not kink-shaming in any way, shape or form. <laughs> no. <laughs> what you get up to in the dark with your medium is between you and the spirits. There are also plenty of props that got employed in these activities. We mentioned the good old spirit trumpet, that device used to amplify the voices of the spirits, as well as helping disguise the medium's own voice. 
They could be rolled around or dragged across the floor in the darkness to create a variety of sound effects. It's like having chains that go clink or... Yeah, it's mm. just so basic, but ironically quite effective. Mm. Telescoping rods were often used to dangle objects, making them appear to float in the air. They could also be used to get pencils or leave marks on the ceiling, supposedly made by the medium while they were levitating. And then there were these little musical box type affairs that were about the size of a matchbox that some mediums had custom made. They were clockwork, they operated a bit like a musical box, but instead they produced clicking or rapping sounds. And because they were so small, they could hide them on their person, even disguise them as a matchbox in case they got searched. But then they could produce these weird rapping sounds. A great many mediums manifested spirit hands, which... For those obviously not being able to see the video recording, it's just the perfect opportunity to do jazz hands at that moment. <laughs> These limbs supposedly belonging to the spirits they had called. D.D. Hume, for example, was caught using a false arm attached to his own to achieve this effect. A bit like the stuffed glove that we mentioned mm. before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was another classic example, yeah. Mina Crandon, a 20th century medium, went for a more visceral approach and made her spirit hands from carved animal livers. I thought you were going to have, oh, and severed human arms from cadavers. Yeah, I don't know if any of them actually went so far as to use hands from cadavers. I think it's gruesome enough to be touched by this spirit hand that is made out of a calf's liver or something like that. I mean, that, yeah, that does seem icky. Spirit faces were generally created using pictures cut out from magazines or masks made from paper mache. These might be affixed to cloths or dangled using a rod. And then we get on to ectoplasm. Hooray! <laughs> Everybody's favourite. <laughs> As we mentioned last episode, it's a bit different from what you might expect if all you know about ectoplasm is what you saw in Ghostbusters. So ectoplasm was generally just a muslin, which the medium would hide about their person. Sometimes it may have been soaked in phosphorus oil to make it glow, other times they just rely on it being white and standing out. The mediums would get quite creative in how they hid it. Female mediums would sometimes hide it in their underwear, which obviously made it uh, less likely to, to be discovered. And one of the more disgusting aspects of this is that a number of mediums developed a technique of swallowing the cloth and then regurgitating it at the table, manifesting this, this ectoplasm from their mouth. And you can see photographs of this online, and it does look every bit as disgusting as you might think. And I can only imagine what that must have smelled like. Yummy. By the 20th century, enterprising mediums could buy ready-made props via mail order. These included items like a spirit wrapping table, a self-playing guitar, and a complete spiritualistic seance. Have a seance in a box. That makes you kind of wonder how convinced people were by this stuff, you know, when you, when you can buy it mail order kits for, for doing it. But I guess these were catalogues that were specialists. Yeah, exactly. They were circulated amongst mediums. They certainly didn't appear in the Army and Navy catalogue. I know that much. Ah, there you go. You need to price that up, Matt. Well, they weren't in Sears <laughs> and Roebuck either. No. 
But I suppose that that must be similar to how stage magicians operated yeah. at the time, in that they didn't want the public to see all the various things that they were using in their act, but you know they would have wanted to be able to buy them. But it kind of makes it easy to debunk, because yes, we, I think as punters, we know that the stage magician is fooling us with trickery. But if journalists could show that there were actual seance kits that you could buy, people are actually genuinely believing this stuff is real. That would seem to be a, a good way of debunking it to some degree, at least. Well, we've talked about the dark, so here's a great accompanying piece to this. Phosphorescence. Phosphorus oil was an indispensable tool. It would glow when mixed with other oil and could be pre-mixed and stored in an opaque container to keep it hidden until use. This could then be used to make objects glow, which was especially effective when combined with an extendable rod. One medium, Cecil Husk, was exposed while pretending to be a spirit by covering his face with such oil. Brilliant. I mean, I can't imagine that was too healthy. There's phosphorus and there's phosphorus. If this was, I forget which one is the really dangerous one. Presumably it's not the Bernie one. <laughs> but yeah, it was around this time that match workers were getting fossy jaw and having to have large parts of their face amputated. So I can't imagine it was too healthy just rubbing the stuff into your skin. <laughs> I imagine not. And then... There's just general other sounds. So Lisa Morton mentions in her book, she quotes Tom Waits, the musician, who suggested that some mediums at the time used pipes similar to those used in pipe organs to create sounds during seances. And he says they would outfit the room where they would conduct the seance with this whole matrix of pipes and things that they could use to send voices and have them come out in unusual places. Mm. That's really quite elaborate. And I've read Nightmare Alley recently, the novel, which may become relevant to an upcoming episode. Spoilers. And yeah, there's similar stuff in that. It doesn't come into other of the film adaptations but the protagonist in nightmare alley in the novel particularly is a fraudulent medium and he gets into very elaborate stuff in his spiritualist church that he sets up with doing all sorts of clever stuff with sound i mean mostly they're using records but this whole thing of having voices and sounds coming out from various parts around the church is pretty key and then perhaps one of the greatest tools of, available to fraudulent mediums is the cold reading. And this is a series of techniques that allow the medium to convince the subject that the spirits are telling the medium things that only the subject would know. I mean, it's definitely a talent, isn't it, that people develop this cold reading thing. And there's a bunch of techniques that are related to cold reading or that form cold reading. So asking broad questions or making statements that could apply to many audience members sometimes known as shotgunning, such as there being a deceased family member who wants to make amends, or saying that there is someone in the audience who is seeking advice about a health problem. If you're turning up to this kind of event, the chances are that if you throw questions like that out there, that's going to apply to half, three quarters of the people out there. I mean, whether you turn up to the event or not, yeah, it's probably, uh, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. probably going to catch people in. And then there are these kind of Barnum statements in which the medium 
makes a broad statement and invites the subject to fill in the details. Things like, I see you're worried about a family member or you lost someone who was close to you. You've also got the Rainbow Ruse, wonderfully multicolour title there. Statements that contain contradictions covering all bases. Mm. I see you're a gentle person. Also, there are certain things that make you deeply angry. Yeah, like frauds. <laughs> yeah, I think these are particularly effective because everybody thinks that, oh, people say I'm a gentle person, but, you know, I'm really, I'm deeply angry. You know, that I, oh, that, that is me because, again, I'm special and, and I'm, yeah. I'm more complicated. And these contradictory statements just feel more powerful yeah. somehow. And because they're contradictory, they probably do apply to you in some way. The fact that people have been using these techniques for a couple of hundred years now very effectively and they still work shows how effective they are. Another classic technique in this is just being vague and then backtracking when you get something wrong. So, oh yeah, I, I thought I thought it was an old woman who was trying to contact me, but the you know, the mists between here and the the spirit world are thick, and I, I yeah, I see it's actually now a man now. Yes, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a man. It can be difficult to see the spirit world clearly. I was mistaken. Yeah. There was a, one of the videos that I watched in lead up to this was a, uh, a Richard Dawkins TV series. I think it's the enemies of reason of which the, the first episode of that has him go, uh, not go up against, but having sit down with a, a fortune teller like that, there's exactly that moment comes up where he says, hang on a minute. Didn't you say this person was uh, a different name before? And you can see Mm. the kind of guy stumbling. Oh yeah. um, uh, Yeah. 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 yeah, All right. And and just desperately tries to go off on a different tangent, but you can see the poor guy is completely fumbled and has no confidence going forward. If, for example, you can see that someone is, you know, very obvious example, wearing a wedding ring, you can infer from that that they are married, but perhaps if they've come along to see a medium, you might assume, particularly if they're elderly, that perhaps they've been recently widowed. And you could chance that and and use that as mm. a, a building block to sort of then float the idea that perhaps they've lost someone close to them. And then, you know, if they acknowledge that, sort of suggest that it might be their husband or wife. You know, it'd be a great thing to almost do as a set piece scene in a game is if you're playing a debunker mm. or going up against one, mm. you just you take the time to prep your appearance with as many false flags or uh, uh, little red herrings that you possibly can, like the single character wearing a wedding ring or having a Masonic lapel on their jacket or as many <laughs> completely false things that you can have, that li- nice little subtle things that their mark can pick up on and then you go ah but i'm not a freemason i'm not even married (laughs) and all of this of course can be augmented with research into the audience beforehand working these into the cold reading for added authenticity yes what's known as warm readings or even hot readings they're a bit more difficult these days with the energy crisis and then there's the fact that the audience buys into all this and you can use that against them Bear in mind that people are going along to seances because they want to. It's not like they've necessarily been tricked Mm. into going or anything like that. So the chances are that they're already going to want to 
experience something and believe what the medium is saying. They're predisposed to doing so. Maybe not even because they're gullible, but because they're vulnerable or because they're curious, whatever. But, you know, you have got a primed audience there. Morton quotes a study in her book in which participants were told a table was levitating and they believed this, despite the fact that the table was just like stationary. Hume used similar techniques, telling the participants that he was levitating in a darkened room and letting them believe it. People are very, can be very suggestible, I guess is the, is the message. Feel my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> my God, Matt, you're levitating, man. Oh, <laughs> I just, just something I do at weekends. <laughs> While documenting the techniques of Florence Cook, Sergeant William Edward Cox noted that Cook told participants if they were to seize the spirit, they would kill the medium. And Cox wrote of another medium, Mary Showers, who, when exposed in her deception by a participant, just cried out, You have killed my medium! <laughs> you mean you've killed your career? So how might we use spiritualism in our games? We've already said that this is looking at uh, the gaslight period, mm -hmm. Victorian London and so on. I mean, not that gaslight is, is limited to Victorian London by any means, but, mm. but uh, the Victorian era, at least. I know at least one published gaslight scenario that does use a seance as its opening mechanism. It's kind of set piece for its opening scene. Mm -hmm. It's from the sacraments of evil collection it's a scenario called eyes of a stranger which paul might remember that matt not ran it for us at the club a long time ago i was wondering yeah it has that very opening of so you're, you've all investigators and you've been invited to this little get together where a wealthy upper class npc is going to perform a seance and then shit goes badly downhill pretty much from the word go <laughs> But in that instance, it's not obviously an event hosted by a fraud for entertainment, that there is actually something going on there. But that's where I'll leave it in case you get uh, spoilers, because it's actually quite a fun scenario to play. I'd definitely recommend that one. But yeah, I can't think of any moments where that you actually see that stuff is faked other than one scenario that I definitely will keep nameless, because that's the whole point of it, that it's all about frauds. But there is one that does involve the other side of the Atlantic, where there is a very fraudulent spiritual thing going on. It's it's hard to talk about that one without giving the game away, but that one does involve mm. frauds. I feel like this is a good thing to start in media res, like you're at a seance and you're mm. all sat around the table and that's when the game starts. I don't know, it just mm. seems to lend itself well to that. Because I can imagine if the setup is, oh, you're going to a seance, people are going to want to do a lot of stuff before they get there and so it just seems like a good way to kick off the game. A, a, a rich with atmosphere, you know, and, and most people can visualise that as well, I think, because we've seen it portrayed in films and photographs and so on. Yeah, I think that could work especially well in a LARP. If you hmm. actually did a LARP in the form of a seance and actually used some of these fraudulent techniques within the LARP, if you had the right players and the right kind of buy-in, then, you know, that could be really quite creepy to take part in. There was, and this is me plumbing the depths of my memory and going back about 15 odd years or more, 
there was back when Isles of Darkness were running their World of Darkness games. They ran a venue called Mortals, which were unlike you played the various supernatural splats, so vampires, werewolves, etc. You just got to play regular people. Mm. And one of those games that they held at a big regional event was people getting together to explore. I think it was like a haunted house or something quite uh, stereotypical, but the GMs called for a time freeze at one particular point and asked everyone to close their eyes. And then they flicked a switch, turned the lights out as well, but also started a speaker going where it was almost like a lot of white noise. But there was the vague hints of words and such being spoken Mm. over Mm. that. And then, of course, when they flicked, turned the lights back on and told everyone to open their eyes, what the whole thing had been was to hide the fact they had got one of the other GMs or storytellers dressed up in costume as this kind of monk-like figure, holding a skull in their hands, head bowed, just seemingly appeared in the middle of the room. <laughs> oh, nice. Then, of course, when everyone opened their eyes, a few people <laughs> definitely screamed. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is really like using some of these kind of stage performance things to, mm-hmm. to good effect i think in, in mm-hmm. the game that that sounds awesome uh the fact you could take your idea scott of playing it as a larp but you could play it as a tabletop game mm. where you're playing role players that are going to uh <laughs> a larp but then it's real it's seanceception yeah <laughs> but then you could you could do a larp where the larpers are playing tabletop role players that are <laughs> now oh, no no we'll stop there but go back to the just the tabletop aspects of it. We mentioned, I can't remember whether it was this episode or the previous one, the idea of mediums who are getting in contact with mythos entities and being manipulated that way. But I think you could also have fun with a fraudulent medium who perhaps had learnt a bit of mythos magic and you know, was perhaps doing things like using Daniel Dunn's mm. humours as an example. Perhaps you know, he's found some way of, of actually flying for real mm. and is genuinely levitating or you know you've got people who are manifesting some of these dancing phosphorescent things that you might otherwise see as dangling from rods but instead they're using a tillinghast resonator in the room yeah i like the idea that you've got some like minor power and like Mm -hmm. how do i exploit this power how do i make anything out of this or i could like use it in a in a seance to good effect to make it seem more real but perhaps you can't really think of any other way of using your power of I don't know, if it's just levitating off the floor a couple of feet i don't know what you're going to do with that reach high shelves <laughs> then you start learning what the price is mm. that everyone at the supermarket always asks you can you just get yep. that from me there yeah <laughs> there is another published scenario i can think of that does revolve around stage magician antics where it's a quite simple thing i think probably the inspiration for this maybe came from the prestige Mm. where you've got the two boxes on either side of the stage they bounce a ball between one and then the person comes out of the other box and grabs the ball before it uh, gets to the other side of the stage yeah it's it's a gate box Mm. oh yes someone has basically got this huge gate box but of course it's every time they use it their sand whittles away just a little bit more (laughs) until the the poor performer starts going a little bit caca and also uh, thinking about it Lovecraft's story, Nyarlathotep, has him basically going around and doing this 
stage show like mm. the demonstrations Tesla and Edison used to do of electrical technology and stuff like that. But it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that, you know, like 50 years earlier, involving some kind of seance where instead of it being technological, it's all these spiritualist techniques that have been done for real. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Aaron Hawke. And also, with the caveat that hopefully we get this one right, because it's usually me who screws them up, thank you very much to Extina Pierce Tomlin. And thank you very much to Frank Schmutzer. And thanks to V. Potter. And thank you very much to Steve West. And thank you very much to Jefferson Donizetti Oliveira. And finally, thanks to Ed Flager. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found, bringing it up when the opportunity presents on social media, or just saying that you got a good recommendation from someone on the other side. Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.